0: Father, this is Your Word tonight. The Spirit's the teacher. Uh, Father, I'm just a vessel. I pray, Lord, You'd use me mightily tonight and teach Your Word according to Your will. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to reach the final ring in Paul's view of sanctification that we've been studying now. This is the fourth ring. I don't have a chart in front of me, but you've seen it multiple times. I'm hoping you already remember it. The fourth ring, the outer ring, represents that final priority. Of sanctifying effort. And in this case, it represents our righteousness within society. Now, as you hear me say that, you know that society is made up of believers and unbelievers. And we know those two groups have already been addressed individually by earlier rings. So you might assume. That a teaching on our righteousness in society would be very redundant to the things we've already learned. But in this case, it's not. Because this ring addresses unique institutions and customs of society. And regrettably, Christians, because of our worldview, can sometimes live within society in ways that are counterproductive to our righteousness. For example, a Christian might read in scripture that our country is not of this world that our citizenship is found in heaven. And in reading those things, we might misconstrue that teaching as license to disobey authority on earth while we are here in the time being. Or we might think that since we've overcome the world, as John says, and we have a different eternal future than the rest of society, that means we're not under obligation to respect society's rules. Well, those views are not right. They're wrong. They're not helpful to the church's mission. And Paul is addressing those things now in chapter 13. So let's look at our Bible's proper view of a Christian's relationship with the institutions of this fallen world. Chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. "...for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake." So here we are, the fourth and that final ring of the sanctifying structure that I've called Paul's bullseye, and in this final ring, Paul says, Christians are to be in subjection to governing authorities, and it's a clear and it's an unequivocal statement, and I want you to notice, Paul says, every person, which means that God intended and expected that all humanity would live under a government, including Christians. Government has a proper role in society and in the life of every believer as God has appointed. And for the most part, even an elementary student can understand the value of government in its simplest sense. People living together in society, being restrained in their behaviors and guided in their choices by the judgment of a few set over them. How those decision makers are chosen and how they rule and how that rule is regulated. Well, all of those things are obviously of concern when you start talking about government. But regardless of those details, government in simple terms holds the potential to bring both great benefits and unparalleled risks in society. So in an ideal situation, you have sensible rulers who ensure peaceful and just coexistence for everyone in the society. In the worst cases, you're going to have a government becoming instruments for evil hearts to oppress the society that they manage on a mass scale. But in practice, most governments fall somewhere between those two extremes. But because government holds so much power over all of us, the topic of obedience to government, especially to ungodly governments, will prompt strong reactions from many Christians. When we agree with the governing authorities that we find ourselves under, when we agree with their decisions, we will, you know, support their policies, we'll obey them enthusiastically, typically. But when we object to their decisions, well, then we tend to act in opposite ways. Not just Christians, that's human nature in general. But for the Christian, it can become a point of focus. Just recently, with Donald Trump's election, Many on the left objected to his presidency, declaring he's not my president or other such things, right? Christians on the right of the political spectrum have done similar things with previous presidents. But for a Christian, the temptation to reject governing authorities is especially tempting when they stand opposed to our biblical worldview. In the worst cases, we may take our personal objections as license that we can act contrary to law in defense of our biblical principles. And while there are going to be times when acting in disobedience to the law is appropriate for a Christian, those situations are rare, and they are specifically addressed in Scripture. And the Scripture that we were talking about in terms of when and and why is the bullseye again, the very thing we've been studying. And we're going to look at that more closely here in a minute. But first, notice where Paul begins. He does not begin with exceptions. He begins with the rule, obey government. Our Christian duty requires that we seek every opportunity to obey rather than seeking for the exceptions that permit us to disobey. We ought to maintain the same attitude toward obedience to our laws in government that we expect our children to take in maintaining Our rules in the household, right? I mean, don't you expect your children to do everything they can to obey the spirit of your rules, even under circumstances when doing so may involve some trade offs or some difficult decision making in order to arrive at the best outcome? Because you and I know as a parent, there are going to be times when there are exceptions to our rules and they must be bent or broken for the greater good. But even then, in general, we still want to see our children developing hearts that seek to obey, that are leaning in that direction, rather than looking for every opportunity to get around the rules. Likewise, Paul's opening statement anticipates that a Christian's heart would be directed toward obedience of government as a rule, not toward always looking for the exceptions. We only disobey the law when the law comes into conflict with the demands of righteousness that come in those greater rings in Paul's bullseye. So at the end of verse 1, Paul defends this, this exhortation, this order that we obey government by saying it is tantamount to obeying God himself. Paul says there is no authority, meaning on earth, except those that have been established by God himself. In other words, no one gets elected into office except that God himself elected that leader through the agency of humanity. That's one of the strongest statements of God's sovereignty you'll find in the entire New Testament, by the way. It's on a par with Joseph's words in the Old Testament in Genesis when he declares that his unlikely rise to power in Egypt was the result of God's sovereign will. Remember that? Genesis 45, 7. In speaking to his brothers, Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I assume most of us, if not all of us, know the story of Joseph. And so you immediately appreciate the significance of that example from the Old Testament. Just as with Joseph, Paul is saying that the Lord sovereignly decides who enters into power today. We don't need that leader to stand up like Joseph did and remind us of that. The Word of God reminds us of that. And, of course, the great irony is that most leaders have no concept of this even happening. The Lord raises up new governments and new nations, and he destroys the same that's true regardless of the form the government takes, whether a democracy, whether a monarchy or a totalitarian regime. It's true regardless of how righteous that government turns out to be. Therefore, righteousness within society, our role in producing a righteous witness within society, it requires that we respect our rulers knowing they are God appointed. You don't have to vote for them. You don't have to love them. But you have to respect their authority, knowing that God has put them in that place for some eternally good purpose. And so opposing a government authority in an unlawful way is sin against God and against his authority. In verse 2, Paul says that any person, Christian or otherwise, who resists authority is opposing the ordinance of God. And the word ordinance in Greek could have been translated the decision of God. That is to say, when you oppose law and order or government in general in an unauthorized, unlawful way, you are fighting God. You're fighting against his judgment, which I hope everyone would recognize to be both useless and foolish. It's not going to go anywhere. He's going to get his way regardless of what you do or say. The only thing that your opposition to government will achieve is your own condemnation. Paul says in verse 3. And he's referring here to the condemnation that comes to us on earth, not a spiritual condemnation, not the condemnation of our soul. He's just making the obvious point that the Christian who makes a habit of rebelling against government authorities is going to suffer the penalty of law. I mean, you may not get caught the first time, but if that's a habit, you're going to get caught sooner or later. To quote the great philosopher Eric Clapton, I fought the law and the law won. That's what happens. So if you violate the law, even if it's in the name of righteousness, you should expect the authorities to respond. The law will justly condemn you. And when it does, you will be experiencing the judgment of God acting through those government authorities. Paul reminds us in verse 3 that rulers, or we could say government, exists for the good of all society. That's why God brought it into existence. God originally instituted government. At the conclusion of the flood in chapter 9 of Genesis, as Noah exited the ark, the Lord granted mankind the right to rule over himself, over other men, and enforce law. And he even permitted men to act uh, in harsh ways to punish lawbreakers, to including the death penalty. I'll read you two verses in which that change is described. Genesis 9 5. The Lord is speaking to Noah says, Surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So with this simple statement, God brought about a major change in society. He instituted the concept of people ruling over other people and carrying out God's justice on God's behalf. And he did this because we were entering a unique period of history. God had just promised Noah following the flood that he would never again repeat the judgment of flooding the world as a means of addressing the rampant sin of mankind. But the sin of men was going to continue and so was its negative effects. And therefore, as mankind repopulated and refilled the earth, God had to have a new way of responding to the sin of the human heart. He couldn't depend on just wiping the slate clean again when everything got out of control once more. So beginning with Noah's family, God said men will now have the right to rule over others and punish evil on God's behalf. And in that way, God was now preparing to work through human government to regulate man's sin and to prevent the unrestrained evil that had led to the flood. And Paul says that's why, in a nutshell, we are obligated to respect this institution because we need to recognize God's good purpose in ordaining it to begin with. Paul says if we obey government, we should expect to have praise from society and vice versa. If we don't obey government, we're going to expect to see condemnation. Now, obviously, verses 3 and 4 are giving us a general truth. That is, generally, if you obey government, good things result. And generally, if you disobey government, you're working contrary to righteousness and you should expect its wrath. And in that way, God is working generally through government uh, to give incentive to restrain our evil instincts. Right? I mean, what's the main reason you don't rob a bank? It's not because it's hard. It's because you'll go to jail. Even if you might entertain an instinct of one minute or another to do that, you would stop yourself right away because of the consequences. That's, that's government working right there to restrain evil. You want proof of that? What happens when all the lights, all the power goes off and all the police are out of town? What, what happens? I mean, we see the effect of government in the negative sense immediately. Now, right about now... You and I begin to ask questions about exceptions, because it's inevitable as we think about the implications of this, we run into those dark corners of exception in our mind, especially when we're thinking of an immoral government, one that doesn't operate according to these general principles. For example, if we lived in Nazi Germany, would we have to obey Hitler and his government? That would be the first and obvious example everyone uses. Or maybe more contemporaneously, what if we lived in North Korea? Would we have to obey the dictator running that country? Aren't we free to disobey the government when it causes evil to happen instead of good? Well, first, if you assume that a, quote, bad government gives you just cause to ignore its authority, I want you to consider where that kind of thinking leads. Who decides when a government is too evil to obey? Wouldn't everybody just set their own limit according to their own desires? In fact, what government could be good enough to justify our obedience? if that's our standard. Imagine a world where everyone was free to disobey when it suited them based on their own assessment of what is good or bad. It would be a world where everyone thought they knew better than their own rulers what they thought was good, right? Wouldn't we end up in the exact same situation that Israel suffered under during the time of Judges? Judges 17, verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And if that sounds like a good thing to you, you should read the whole book of Judges. There would be no rule at all, and therefore there could be no governor on sin under those circumstances. It's not news for us to hear and to acknowledge that government is imperfect. I mean, there's nothing newsworthy in that. It's often unrighteous, but here's the point. It's better than the alternative. The absence of government is always worse than a bad government. Sin left unchecked always leads to far more injustice than those created by the worst of governments because if you think corrupt government looks evil look at what happens in places where government completely breaks down for example nazi germany caused a whole bunch of evil but its evil deeds would pale in comparison to a world with no government and as bad as north korea's dictator is and of course he's cruel beyond description people would suffer even more if there was no government. Because even the deeds of the worst despot cannot compete with the unrestrained sin of millions of people doing what is right in their own eyes. Again, you just have to look at what happens in a small community for a few hours on a given night when there's no police power or civil authority after a disaster, for example, or in some other kind of riot situation. You have Hitlers everywhere in their own little way creating mayhem. Governments will never be perfect, and that's not Paul's argument. But in that respect, government is no different than any other dispensation that God has given to us prior to Christ. Following the sin of Adam and woman in the garden, God began to give the world a series of measures, or as we might say, dispensations of His grace, dispensing His grace. And He made these dispensations available to combat the effects of Adam's fall, to combat sin. He gave us the dispensation of human conscience. And then he gave us that of the rule of patriarchs. And then he gave us human government. And then he even gave us his own law through Israel. Each of those dispensations served a role in God's economy, and God required that men respect each for what it was intended to accomplish in its day. And yet, as you look at the record of this in Scripture, each dispensation ultimately failed in its own way to completely address the problem of sin. None of them had the power to rein in man's rebellion, much less put an end to it altogether. Each dispensation's failure only served to demonstrate the necessity for a new spiritual birth in Christ. That is to say, the record of God dispensing his grace through all these lesser means serves as proof that there's no solution apart from Christ. Because only the dispensation of God's grace in the person of Christ has the power to solve our sin problem once and for all at the root cause. That is the heart that is evil and disobedient. And even then, as you come to faith, it's only after you shed this sinful body and you enter into the eternal state of heaven before you'll finally be free of it. But in that day to come, in the kingdom, you and I will experience truly perfect dispensations of grace. In that day, you will have a perfect conscience. In that day, you will have a perfect patriarch leading our family in Christ. You will have a perfect government. You will have a perfect ruler with a perfect law. And therefore, you'll experience sin ruled in perfect justice. That's what we're waiting on. In the meantime, guess what you have? Human government, with all its flaws... God raising up imperfect rulers to accomplish his will, irrespective of whether they're even aware of it or not. And you submit to those rulers not because of their merits or even of the merit of government generally, but because you have faith in God to work through these things as he has said he will. You trust that God can achieve good and perfect things using even complete idiots and despots. And that's probably a reference to us too. Because he works through donkeys. He works through whatever he needs to. So scripture requires that we maintain a heart that's inclined to obey government, not to look for excuses for our disobedience. That would be true even in the worst cases like Nazi Germany, where you would seek to live in harmony with that government as much as you could, knowing that in doing so you're respecting God's judgment and his plans. But yet doing so without sin. Remember, God used Hitler's atrocities to establish the conditions under which the nation of Israel could reemerge in the world after nearly 2,000 years of exile. So though many Christians felt justified in opposing Hitler's rule, history actually teaches that God worked through that man for eternal good. Not that the man did good things, but that God used his evil to achieve good things. Remember, Scripture tells us that before the kingdom of God appears, Israel must first be regathered in her land. So our entry into the kingdom depended on God finding a way to bring Israel back into Palestine, and God chose to use Hitler to make that happen, at least in part. So when do you have liberty to disobey governing authorities? Well, the answer is to follow Paul's priority scheme in this bullseye. If a governing authority demands that you do something that violates an inner ring's demands, well, then you have to disobey the government. For example, if the government prohibits the sharing of the word of God. We must decline to obey because inner rings, uh, particularly the one for unbelievers, requires that we evangelize and the ring for the church requires that we disciple, both of which require the word of God. This is not something new. The apostles had this problem in their day. In Acts 4.18, we hear about two of them, Peter and John. says in verse 18, When they had summoned them, when the Pharisees, when the Jewish leaders had summoned the apostles, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So here's an example of the rings of the bullseye working out the plan. The two apostles, John and Peter, they refused to obey these governing authorities. Because those authorities ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus or to teach about him. And that violated those second and third rings. They had to teach their brothers and sisters and they had to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, both of which required that they use Jesus' name. So they had to disobey the government. But here's the corollary. Even still, these two apostles were inclined to obey the government in the sense that they submitted to the penalty that came to them for violating the law. When they disobeyed the command to be silent, they were prepared to suffer the consequences. Later in Acts 5, the next chapter, they are re-arrested for speaking about Jesus in public. And they willingly go to prison. And at a point later, they appear before those same Jewish authorities. And they say this in Acts five twenty-seven: When they had brought them in, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostle answered, we must obey God rather than men. They give us the perfect example of the tension between obeying government and maintaining obedience to God. And here's the simple rule. At all times, obey God. So obeying government is obeying God until it isn't. And when obeying government becomes contrary to obeying God, well, then you disobey government in order to obey God. So you're always obeying God. You see the point? As long as what the government is asking of you is not directly in contradiction to what God is asking of you, then you're obeying God by obeying the government. It's only when those two things become askew that you have to choose God over man. And notice, just as quickly, they return to obeying the government by accepting the consequences for their earlier disobedience. So in other words, they are willing to submit to the government so far as its punishment is concerned, having not been able to submit to the orders of the government in the first place. We do this understanding that our circumstances are going to be a result of the will of God regardless. Right? If you end up in prison because you could not submit to the government's requirements, but you will submit to its actions against you, that's God's will for your life. He's putting you there. It's the government, after all, that's doing it. And that government, we've already heard, is the agent of God. So if you find yourself in that situation, you willingly go to prison, assuming God has some good purpose in you, ministering from inside the walls of the prison. There's people who need Jesus there too. Do we only send bad guys to preach to them? Chuck Colson came out of that situation, as you might know. Ironically, the Jewish authorities who heard this defense, who persecuted Peter and John, they recognized the same truth. They did. After arresting Peter and John the second time, a prominent Pharisee, Gamaliel, the man who taught Paul, says this to the council in chapter 5, verse 38. He says, In the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, obviously, he was not fully wise to what was happening. But he did see it from a certain human level of wisdom. He understood that God's in control. If this is meant to be, you can't stop it. If it's not meant to be, it won't go anywhere. You don't have to get involved. But in a similar sense... When government's acting contrary to our desires, but we can't see any reason not to obey it, we have to go with the assumption God's at work in this somehow. We ought to adopt that same perspective. If the orders of government run contrary to God's desire, then the government's not going to prevail in the end anyway. And if it's part of God's plan, well, then we can't stop it. Let it happen. So in general, we only disobey government when it runs contrary to the commands found in those earlier rings, and even then we submit to the consequences of our own disobedience. Don't commit further crime by avoiding the prosecution that you know was supposed to come. Now, having said all that, you can oppose government in lawful ways. There's nothing restricting your desire to be a participant in the government. You can vote the bums out of office. You can can engage in lawful protests. You can lobby your congressman. You can contribute funds. Now, if a rebellion breaks out and a coup removes your current leaders, well, then you're going to have to make a choice as to where you place your allegiance. That's the very thing that happened in this country during the Civil War. Christians will have to decide in those circumstances, what is the lawful government? Who deserves my allegiance? But then as you make that decision, submit to them accordingly. Those are personal decisions of conscience, so you do as you feel you should. But it's always with this attitude of submission, not looking to get around the rule, but trying to figure out what the rule is. As Paul says at the end of verse 5, you obey government not only to avoid its wrath but for a good conscience. Now, living this way advances the mission of the church. And if you ignore these commands, you're hurting the mission of the church. If believers are commonly seen breaking the law on so-called religious grounds, your opportunity to win souls for Christ in the culture is severely compromised. There is nothing righteous, for example, in disobeying the government on issues of property rights or on prayer in public schools. Or disobeying court orders so that you can preserve public displays of the Ten Commandments on the front lawn of public buildings. That kind of stuff may seem righteous, but it's just a religious observance. And in reality, it's sin. Moreover, when we take these stands for our own sensibilities, we offend law-abiding citizens. And therefore, we give them little reason to respect or consider our admiration of Christ. Because if our admiration of Christ leads us to be lawbreakers and their pagan lifestyle has allowed them to be law keepers, who's the better of the two? We're just using the church as cover to get our own way politically rather than submitting to God's will. Because we prefer to see what we want, not what God's permitting. And by the way, the Lord does not need a stone replica of the Ten Commandments to remind him or the world of what is righteous. And he isn't depending on us establishing prayer in public schools so that he can teach the hearts of children. You see, in other words, even our rationale for why these things are good falls apart when we remember God has the power to do these things without our help. God's got the power to use all things for good, and he's apparently doing things that to us seem bad, like World War II, but taking very good things out of them that he couldn't accomplish any other way self-evidently. So the Lord isn't benefiting when his people rebel against meaningless rules of government, only serving to make ourselves a spectacle of disobedience. The only time lawbreaking works to the advantage of the gospel, and history proves this, is when you are being persecuted for faithfully obeying God. Persecution always has the effect of strengthening the church. The early martyrs brought great respect to the church when they were unfairly treated for simply following their faith quietly. But even then, the martyrs didn't revolt against Caesar. Christians submitted to the edicts of Rome, enduring painful deaths by wild animals or fire. And they accepted those things as well as God's decree for them, knowing he could use the martyrs to bring more people moved by their piety into faith. Now contrast that with those today who gain notoriety by opposing government over meaningless things. Paul moves forward on on this idea of living in a Christ-pleasing, mission-advancing way by elaborating on some very specific situations that touch on some of these key concerns. And look at verse 6. He says, "For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers, are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear, to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Historically, the most challenging aspect of our obedience to government is in the area of our money. Uh, specifically paying taxes. And Paul sets this issue to rest pretty quickly, doesn't he? He says, pay your taxes. And that should come as no surprise. It's just a law like any other law, right? You know, When in doubt, refer to rule number one, obey the government. But historically, and again, I think this is part of the heart of, of religious people, the pious have often drawn a line in obeying government when it came to their money, which should tell you something about the hearts of so-called religious people sometimes. They love money more than they love obeying God. Even in Jesus' day, you see this tension in in the Gospels. The Jewish religious authorities were frequently seen objecting to paying taxes to Roman government. And they objected on the basis, here again, of a piety that said, supporting an evil government with my money is an ungodly thing to do. Well, when you put this dilemma to Jesus, here's what he says. He acknowledges that government has a different priority then serving God. When he asked about paying taxes, Jesus famously said, render to Caesar what is due Caesar. But then he added, render to God what is God's. What his point was is that governments do what governments do, which is namely taking people's money to fund their desires. And that's to be expected. And you don't serve the purpose of righteousness by opposing that natural course. Instead, Jesus was indicating, if your goal truly is to support the plan, the program of righteousness in the world, if that's truly what you're after, well then why don't you focus on giving obedience to God? Give to God what is God's in that respect. Let the government do what it will do. Because you don't get one through the other. Obeying the commandments of God is how you obtain righteousness in your life. Not by withholding the thing a government has every right to obtain on the premise that you're trying to make the government more righteous. Because you're not. You don't. It's not how it works. In fact, ironically, refusing to pay the government taxes is sinning against God, the very righteousness you're trying to create. And this is true, by the way, even when the government uses your money for unholy purposes. Remember, those authorities, Paul says, are from God. And he holds each person accountable for what they do in their life. You are not accountable for what some governing authority does with your tax dollars. You're accountable for one thing only, to obey God's command to give your taxes to the government. After that, it's in their hands. You're not worried. If they spend it on things you don't agree with, you're not accountable to God for that. You're not blamed for that. For the same reason, Paul says, those who work for the government, he mentions rulers here, but I think by logical extension it applies to everyone in government. Those people, he says, who collect your taxes and rule over you in other respects, they have to be respected. Because they are servants of God in the role they have within government. So in Paul's day, as you know from the Gospels, tax collectors were usually singled out for being you know, especially unrighteous, agents of evil and the like. And that perception was partly earned because tax collecting in that day involved a kind of unscrupulous extortion racket. Uh, the guy who was the tax collector for some area had a certain goal he had to collect, and then he was free to collect above that if he could for his own benefit. So it just became a big you know, extortion scheme. Uh, nevertheless, Paul asks the people of his day who lived under that system to consider these people servants of God. Now, Have you ever considered the IRS as a servant of God? I think like in Paul's day, most of us probably assume they're working for the other side. But the truth is that they, in an unwitting, unaware sense, are working the plan of God as they have been appointed. Paul says you need to show those people, and I would take this to mean all government servants, with a little bit of respect, considering God's sovereign will in their work. If God has raised up a government, and if He's using it for His purposes, then by definition, those who operate within it are His servants. That's a helpful thing to remember when you're fuming while standing in the long line at the DMV, or you're getting the runaround on the phone with the Social Security Administration or something. I mean, I'm not endorsing poor workmanship or service. What I'm saying is, in a sense, when you take your concerns out on the individual, you're opposing God again. Treat those people with respect, Paul says. Because even though they don't understand this, they've, in a sense, devoted themselves to serving God. Wouldn't that be an ironic or interesting conversation to have with some of these people, right? I have to treat you nice. You're a servant of God. <laughs> and we do this even if they aren't doing it particularly well for our sake, right? That's, that's not conditional. Now, if you take this attitude of respect everywhere you go in society... You're building the platform on which the gospel itself might find inroads. That's the whole point in this, right? Paul says, render to each person what is due them in verse 7. And the word render means to pay, paying something that's owed. So we're not talking about showing somebody a favor. This isn't about, you know, courtesy, being in a good mood for their sake. He's asking us to just do what is expected, just what's required. He says, whether by law or custom or fear or honor bound. So pay your taxes to the government because that's required by law. Give the policeman who stops you respect because that's required by honor and fear. Stand up, put your hand on your heart when you hear the national anthem because that's required by custom. Replace your neighbor's tool if you borrow it and break it. Pay your laborer a fair wage. Give the customary tip for good service. Keep your word. I mean, we're talking about just being a good citizen. None of those things are extras. None of them are favors. They're simply giving somebody what they are due. And in doing those things, you preserve opportunity for the gospel. You don't want to cause offense. You don't want to cast shame on the name of Christ. As Christians, we don't want to be known for doing less than what unbelievers commonly do for one another. Paul takes this idea of rendering to each other. He takes it one step further in verse 8. And he says, don't owe anyone anything either, except love. Now, the way this command is rendered in my English Bible isn't very helpful. It kind of obscures Paul's meaning. Interestingly, the better rendition is found in the NIV, in this case, uh, in Romans thirteen eight, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his man has fulfilled the law. So Paul asks us, just don't leave your debts unpaid. So make sure if you borrow, you repay. And the Bible isn't prohibiting borrowing. That's, uh, I think, a misconception in some Christians' minds. There's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot borrow. But it does prohibit failing to repay your debt. And even in circumstances when legal avenues exist for walking away from debt, I think you should endeavor to do better. But in the case of love, Paul says, we should always strive to place others in debt, so to speak. So while we deal fairly on areas of money, custom, law, duty, etc., you deal with those issues on the basis of what is fair and right. But don't take that transactional attitude when it comes to showing love to people. It's not repay in kind. It's not only love if they love me, only love to the degree they deserve it. That's a transactional mentality. With love, Paul says, the rules aren't that way. If a policeman doesn't return your respect with consideration, you don't hold it against him. We let that debt of love remain unpaid. If our neighbor breaks our tool and doesn't replace it, we forgive that debt in love. We show love to others with no expectation of being repaid because that's exactly what Christ did to his enemies. Paul says, when you live this way, you're truly living out the second commandment of the two Christ said that we should live by, that is, love your neighbors as you love yourself. Ultimately, that is the point of why the Lord put a church on the earth, asked us to live in and around unbelievers, right? That we would think and say and act the way Jesus did in his absence, showing righteousness to the world through those interactions. So in verse 9, Paul quotes from the law, He says, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So in verse 9, Paul quotes from the law, and he specifically quotes from some of the Ten Commandments, so as to illustrate his point, but he he only lists here the commandments that deal specifically with your relationship with other people not with the one you have with God. That's where the first commandment comes in. Paul says, These laws that he mentions, and others of the same, are captured by the essence of loving your neighbor. And this is a really similar teaching to the one Jesus gave the rich young ruler in Luke 18 when the guy came and said, What must I do, teacher, to enter the kingdom? And Jesus gave him a similar list as an example. And Paul's point is similar to the one Jesus was making. That is, true righteousness will be reflected in our treatment of other people. The overriding priority for demonstrating righteousness in society, is that we show love to others and thereby fulfill the law. We put, we work to put people in debt to ourselves by showing them love, and we do so without any expectation of return. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor, Paul says in verse 10. All right, I'm going to stop there with the summary before we look at the last bit of this chapter. This is now in the notes. It's also available, downloaded as part of this lesson. This is the fully finished summary that we've been trying to build out. So the last piece of it regarding righteousness within society, I have a theme that is maintain a respectful place in society to preserve our witness. And the steps of that are obey government as a means of obeying God, render respect and honor to society's laws and customs, show love to the world without expecting repayment. It's pretty simple, hard to do. That's where we stop at the end of this fourth ring. Now, the summary of the fourth ring is those threefold thoughts, right? Um, respecting institutions, obeying government, respecting conventions, maintaining respectful attitude, and so on. With that, we come to this last section at the end of the chapter. And in fact, we've finished the bullseye, technically. What Paul does at the end of 13 is a kind of final argument, final exhortation, and a warning that sums up all of what he's been saying in chapters 12 and 13. This whole concept of, here is all the things you do in sanctifying your life. And he says it this way in verse 11. Do this, which again I think refers to chapters 12 and 13. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, Paul begins here with a warning of sorts. He says... We ought to live in these ways that he's been commanding, referring to that entire bullseye, knowing that it's already the hour for us to awaken from sleep. Now, sleep in this context refers to death. That's a euphemism Paul uses at various places in his letters. Like we see someone as being dead and say they look like they're sleeping. Well, in their day and age, in Paul's day, it was a common thing for someone to describe being dead as being asleep. It was a polite way of saying it. And therefore, awakening, in this context, refers to resurrection, the moment you receive a new eternal body. And this together is a cryptic reference of sorts to Christ's return for his bride, an event that in modern terms we've come to know as the rapture. So Paul's talking about the rapture. He's reminding us of the imminent nature of Christ's return for the church, and therefore of the judgment that will follow immediately thereafter for believers. Paul describes this same situation in another way in his letter to Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4:13. Paul says, "We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, have died in Jesus." For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So notice there again, Paul uses the term sleep to refer to the death of believers who have been awaiting Christ's return. Those souls are not truly sleeping. They just are residing with Christ now, fully conscious, and they're waiting for this event like we are. And in that future moment, they return with Christ to the clouds, Paul says, and they receive new bodies. We who are alive on the earth at this moment will join them in that same situation. Paul says, the hour for this whole thing is already here. What does he mean? Well, it's here in the sense that the return for Christ for the church is an ever-present possibility. You and I do not know when it will happen. Christ said plainly in Matthew 24, no one knows the day and the hour of this event. And since it does not depend on anything, it's not waiting for anything, it can happen at any moment. Remember, Paul and the other writers of the New Testament were declaring the imminent nature of the rapture 2,000 years ago. It was as imminent to them as it is for us now. In fact, you and I can't say that it won't happen in the next hour. So in that sense, the hour is always upon us, ready to happen at any moment. And so Paul reminds us of the imminent nature of the rapture at the end of verse 11, saying, your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Having said that, what he's saying is, even though you and I don't know when we will see Christ, every day our rapture is one day closer. Every hour, it's one hour closer. And in that sense, it's closer now than when you first believed. So in the context of what he's trying to get at here, what he's saying is salvation is not the moment of your saving faith. He's referring it to in a different sense. He's talking about the salvation moment when you receive eternal life. You've received the promise of it by your faith. You'll receive the reality of it when you get your new body. That is when death is not a part of you anymore. When you have eternal life physically. Paul says that day, that moment... Every time another tick goes off the clock, we're that much closer to it. We just don't know how much closer. Now, he uses a slightly different metaphor in verse 12. He says, the night period of history is almost gone, and the day period of history is about to begin. It's almost here. He's using the same kind of language that Jesus uses in John chapter 9 when he talks about his own departure and return. In John 9, 4, he says to the disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day... Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is the light of the world, so that while he's on earth, the world is experiencing a period of light. In other words, the world is witnessing the glory of God in Christ, the light of the world. When Jesus departed, the world returned to a period of, quote, dark, that is a time when the glory of God was absent from the earth. And in that day to come, when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, that will be a return of the light See, that's just metaphor for Jesus, right? Wherever Jesus is, is light. So in that sense, the night we're in now is soon to give way to the light of Christ's second coming. So knowing the rapture is imminent, knowing the second coming is soon, Paul says, knowing those things, how ought you live in the meantime? What kind of student do you become when you hear a pop quiz is coming soon? What kind of child are you when you know your parents have just phoned to say they're on their way home? What kind of employee are you when the boss is looking over your shoulder? The point Paul is making is one that we can all identify with, if you understand it. Paul's saying, Christ's return is imminent. The kingdom is right around the corner. Your judgment is a part of that event. And therefore, we ought to be concerned with who we've become and how we're living for Christ now. He says, you need to lay aside the deeds of darkness, that is, of the sinful, fallen world that we've been saved out of, And in their place, he says, put on the armor of light. I think he's actually referring back to the armor of God that he describes in Ephesians 6. This letter was written before Ephesians, but I'm assuming Paul's concept of the armor of God is already forming in his mind, and he doesn't get around to writing it until he writes Ephesians. In any event, it's a reference to a Christian living in the Spirit, taking full advantage of all the spiritual strength that Christ gives us through practicing the disciplines of our faith. So what he's saying is very simple. Make your sanctification your life's priority. Not your wealth, not your career, not your success, or even your happiness. Those things will come in their own way according to God's will. Make your priority sanctification. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all those other things will be added unto you to paraphrase Jesus, right? If you're still distracted, though, by the deeds of the flesh, living like the unbelieving world lives, Now's the time to put that aside, because there's a pop quiz. The parents are coming home. It's time to get serious. It's time to be prepared for Christ. And in verse 13, Paul gives a few of the kinds of examples that that typify living in the darkness, which can contradict living for Christ. They're not all-inclusive. These are just examples, but I think he picks these because they're common. They're tempting. Carousing is the Bible's word for partying. Partying is the modern term for debauchery or other forms of out-of-control self-indulgence. It's wasting time by satisfying your flesh. It's a contradiction with your purpose for living for Christ. It's not preparing you for Christ's return. And should he return while you're in the middle of one of those party activities, it will be to your shame. Does you know, that ever crossed your mind? I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just the worrisome sort. But I, I think about that. I think about... What if Christ came back right now in the middle of what I'm doing right now in this, in this waste of time or in this sinful pursuit or whatever it is? I'm thinking, this would be a really bad time for him to come back right now. <laughs> you know? That should be a motivating factor to cut it out, shouldn't it? You know, the only reason I think Christians give that license to themselves is because they don't think about this at all. It's like they don't want to think about it, right? Closely associated with carousing or, or partying is drunkenness, which is self-explanatory. And let's expand that thought a little. Any addiction holds the potential to derail our lives. It sets us up for potentially a bad result. We're giving our already powerful flesh even greater control over our spirit, and in that way we're putting our sanctification at great risk. The next two items are also grouped, and for obvious reasons. you got promiscuity and sensuality, and these are just more ways that you can inflame the desires of your flesh, which only serves to interfere with your spiritual progress promiscuity is literally the greek word for bed that's what it is Uh, so it's a euphemism in greek for sleeping around it refers to someone given over to seeking sexual satisfaction rather than seeking for things they should seek for and sensuality is just lewd behavior in any form so if you were to take those words and modernize them a bit uh, those two words would be comparable to fornication today and pornography for example I mean, once again, we're allowing ourselves to become captivated by something, in this case, sexual desire. And in so doing, we're returning to a state of slavery to our bodies that Christ has freed us from spiritually. We're becoming mired in something that wastes our time, it corrupts our witness, it destroys our testimony, it distracts us from more healthy pursuits. You know, just, if anyone's ever been caught up in this stuff, even for a little while, whether it's this stuff or other stuff, you know the effect it has on you. You just, your world kind of closes in around you on this thing for a while. And the rest of the world doesn't matter until you have your satisfaction met in that little thing. And when Christ returns, we're going to regret we spent time in fruitless things like that. Finally, Paul lists strife and jealousy. The problem's the same. Distractions. In this case, strife is, you know, it's settling scores, getting even, winning arguments, worrying about who's winning in your office, worrying about who's winning in some sports arena, thinking about how you're getting the upper hand on your neighbor who's always got the barking dogs or it's this idea that I have to beat other people to win. And then, it, basically, it's contentiousness. It's caring more about power and respect among people than it is with God. And jealousy in any form is just covetousness. It's desiring for things other than what you already have or what you see other people having. Usually today, it's unrestrained materialism or career pursuits, hobbies. You know, the kind of hobby that, what's the IRS's definition? If you don't make money for five years, it's a hobby. There's a lot of people spending a lot of money on things that don't qualify as anything better than a hobby, right? It's just another way to get distracted. Paul says, don't do this stuff. I mean, if you're caught in it, if you've been caught in it, if you're tempted to get caught in it, think twice. Do two things instead. Put on the Lord Jesus, which means live in his commands and by his spirit, in his word. Uh, Go to him for these things. Find your need satisfied in him. Learn what he taught. Live as he commanded. Seek to please him. Concern yourself with what he will say when he returns. Think about the moment of the rapture in the kingdom as truly imminent. And let it drive your thinking and behavior differently. And then Paul says, secondly, make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. That means take whatever steps you need to prevent your own flesh from gaining the upper hand in your life. As Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Not literally, but he means take whatever measures you need to guard yourself from your own flesh's lust. You know why? Because the gains in eternity will be worth the loss you're putting upon yourself now. You stand to gain your sanctification. And with that, opportunity for greater reward. That, in in a nutshell, is what this whole bullseye has been about. I mean, it's not a laundry list. It's a carefully structured way of understanding priorities in life. It's a strategy to succeed against your own flesh for the purpose of pleasing Christ. And the degree to which we implement this plan will be the degree to which we succeed in our eternal goals. The Spirit living in us is doing all the hard work. He teaches us, he convicts us, he points us in the right direction. You just have to yield to him, but that's about turning off the flesh in one way or another, making no provision for it, so that you can follow this prescription, seeking for Christ's pleasure. The hour, as he said, is upon us. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the reminder of what is soon to come. And we wait for it eagerly, Father. Help us to wait for it better prepared. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.